Turning your Bibles with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we'll look at verses 26 to 31 today. We all get a chuckle from the absurd uh, warning labels posted these days. For example, the label on the baby stroller, which reads, remove child before folding. Or the label on a child-sized Superman costume that says, wearing this garment does not enable you to fly. Or one of my favorite, the allergy warning on a bag of peanuts. Warning, this product contains nuts. You know, but as, sur- as absurd as those are, some warnings are our friends. If, if you're working on your computer and a little window comes up and says, you are about to erase your entire hard drive, do you really want to do this? That warning is your friend. Or if you're on a trip somewhere through the open west and uh, you see a sign that says, there are no gas stations for the next 150 miles, that warning is your friend. Today we're going to come to a warning label of sorts, which the Spirit of God has embedded in this book of Hebrews. And while so much of this book has been just exhilarating good news, this passage is sobering in its severity. I doubt it's anyone's favorite passage to preach on. But as severe as this warning is, it's posted for our benefit. So let's read it and give attention to it to think about it for a few moments. Hebrews 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The theme of this whole passage might be stated simply, don't trifle with the Lord. But that warning is presented to us in two slightly different uh, truths. The first is this. Reject Jesus, and you have nowhere to turn. Reject Jesus, and you have nowhere to turn. This first warning is similar to a dead-end sign uh, posted on a street. If you continue down this road, there's no way out. It's going nowhere. And that's the essence of verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Or as our first point puts it, reject Jesus and you have nowhere to turn. As you can imagine, this first verse has caused great agony of soul for those who hear it saying, There's no hope of forgiveness for me. There's nothing I can do. So let's think very carefully about what this warning actually says. First, we're talking here about sin. 
Not just feeling that you aren't good enough, that's not necessarily sin. We're talking about a violation of God's commands. But not every violation of God's command. We're talking about deliberate sin. You don't just happen into this kind of thing. This is something you intentionally did. Oh, but there's more. This is sinning, deliberate sinning, after we have received the truth. Again, this is sin with our eyes wide open. There are lots of things we've done and later realize that was really a bad plan. I should never have done that. But that's not what's in view here. This is talking about understanding exactly what God wants. It's understanding exactly what he forbids and intentionally, deliberately doing otherwise. Oh, but it's even more than that. This is to keep on sinning in that deliberate, uh, intentional, eyes wide open kind of way. The verb is in the continuous present tense. Not just an action in a point of time, but a practice. A repeated, continuing kind of action. We have a term for this kind of turning away from the faith. We call it apostasy. It's to reject, to turn away from the gospel of Jesus. You see, not every sin is apostasy. But when we sin deliberately, when we sin with our eyes wide open, when we become comfortable with such a pattern of sin, then we're walking down a road that leads to total rejection of Christ. Now, it's easy to say, well, we would never do that. I would never renounce Christ. Well, let's be careful not to be so smug. We tend to think of receiving or rejecting Jesus in terms of the words we say. And there's certainly some truth to that. The Bible says, with your mouth you confess Jesus is Lord. But the Bible also often speaks of our receiving or rejecting Christ in terms of our actions, not our words. And that's what we have here. Here the writer describes rejecting Jesus without ever mentioning the words that are being said. Indeed, those who are described as deliberately continuing in a practice of sin and rejecting Jesus might, at the same time, be saying all the right words. But their way of life is one of sin and rebellion, not of righteousness. That's what we read in John, 1 John 3. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. No one who is born of God will continue in sin. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice there's no talk there of renouncing the gospel with words. But a life of sin demonstrates just as clearly that one is not a child of God. So our text says that if we turn away like that, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now that's a frightening statement. So let's make sure we understand what's being said there. This is not saying that if you sin, there's no atonement, there's no forgiveness. This whole section of the last three chapters has all been about how great the atonement of Jesus is and how complete the forgiveness of Jesus is that he restores our souls, he forgives even the unforgivable. But the point here is different. What if you turn away from all of that? Then what do you have? And the answer is unequivocal. There is no other hope. If you reject Jesus, 
You have nowhere else to turn. Now, this makes perfect sense when we think about it in terms of what we know of the original rep, uh, recipients of the book of Hebrews. These people were devout Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. But now because of persecution, persecution that was, that, that was directed at the church but was not directed at Jews, they were tempted toward deliberate sin. Not necessarily sexual sin or greedy materialism, but even the worst sin of turning away from Christ. Now, how could they justify that? Well, they thought we could just go back to being a good Jew. We could bring our sacrifices, our sin offerings, our burnt offerings to the temple, and all will be well. And they won't be breathing down our neck to persecute us. And here God say, no. No, there's nothing to go back to. There isn't any other sacrifice which God accepts. All those former things have been fulfilled in Jesus. If you abandon Jesus, you have nowhere to turn. Back in verse 18 we read, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin because no further sacrifice for sin was needed. Christ's work is complete. And now in verse 26 we read, no sacrifice for sins is left because Christ has now rendered the old system of animal sacrifices obsolete. It is now Christ Jesus or nothing. There is no other option. There are people, we can't ignore this warning. I can't ignore it, and neither can you. In fact, the more we know, the longer we grow in the faith, the more serious this warning becomes to us. It's one thing to lose your way when you don't really know much. But this warning is about turning away when you know exactly what you're doing. Now, how could we ever do such a thing? How could anyone do something like that? You know, folks, it's not hard to understand the lust of the flesh, the lure of the world, the deceitfulness of the evil one. And you and I are not immune to such temptation. Getting caught up in some new fantastic idea which denies the gospel. Giving way to greed that becomes your master. Falling in love with someone whom the Lord denies to you. Letting bitterness grow into, in you until you would rather self-destruct then soften your heart. I don't know about you, I could name names. People I've known, my friends, who have turned away from Christ. But people are able to do that because they have created some false hope for themselves. They think their family heritage will be enough. They think their prestige in the community, their wealth, their prominence will be enough. They think that the good feelings that they get when they give in to those temptations will somehow overcome all the negative consequences. But no matter how you got there, there's no hope if you turn away from Jesus. Jesus' apostles faced this when he began to teach some really hard things in John chapter 6. And his followers, which were, who, who were massive, suddenly just 
picked up and left in droves. And Jesus turned to the twelve and he says, well, are you guys going too? And Peter, in a moment of great clarity, replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's exactly what our text tells us this morning. There's no place to go. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Reject Jesus and you have nothing. That's the first thing we learned here. There's a second truth, though, that's very similar to it. Reject Jesus and you will face God's judgment. Reject Jesus and you will face God's judgment. Up the Mount Baker Highway by Nooksack Falls, there's a sign on a chain link fence there that reads, Danger, do not go beyond this point. Nevertheless, over the years, we've heard the sad news reports of those who ignored that warning and fell to their death over those falls. Our text this morning not only gives us a dead-end warning, reject Jesus and you have nowhere to go, it also gives us a do-not-go-beyond-this-point warning, reject Jesus and you will face God's judgment. I know it's really unpopular to speak of judgment these days. Even in uh, otherwise good churches, people now actively seek to present a gentler, gentler, less condemning image of God. But the plain statement of this text includes a promise of judgment on the unrepentant. Verse 7, 27 speaks of, quote, a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Recent years, there's been some lively discussion about the Bible's teaching concerning hell. Interesting discussion. The truth is, the Bible doesn't tell us all we wish we knew. And much of what it does tell us uses language which is a mix of literal and figurative uh, images. And so we struggle to know which is which. But as we struggle to understand exactly what the Bible says, this is clear, that God will judge and punish with frightening severity those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. The late theologian A.A. Hodge pointed out that this promise of severe judgment has been the position of all the great church fathers, the reformers, the biblical scholars, with all their dictionaries and lexicons and commentaries and systematic theologies. He goes on, so state all the creeds of Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, Congregationalists, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, and all the historic churches of Protestantism. He says, indeed, it is a mistaken philanthropy that would give any encouragement of escaping the biblical injunction of impending doom to those who die outside of Christ. It is a mock charity which would encourage the impenitent to suppose that there is any chance that God does not mean what he says. Reject Jesus and you will face God's judgment. Now, our text gives us some reasons why that must be true. First, because the gospel 
is greater than the law. Verse 28 refers us back to an Old Testament kind of situation. A person has violated the law of Moses. That is, he set it aside as if this doesn't, just doesn't matter. And when that's established in the testimony of two or three witnesses, what happens? He's to be taken out and stoned to death. Now, we've seen repeatedly in the last few chapters that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The gospel of Christ is superior to the law of Moses. So if a person sets aside the gospel as if it doesn't matter, what should the punishment be? Well, the church is not going to take a person out and execute him. We're ministers of reconciliation, not judgment. But God, whose son is superior to the law, God will punish such a one with eternal death. Reject Jesus, and you will face greater punishment than if you reject the law. Secondly, judgment is severe because sin is way more heinous than we think it is. We humans have a knack for putting a positive spin on our sin. So open rebellion against God gets called self-expression. Blatant idolatry gets called pursuing the American dream. An adulterous affair gets called a beautiful experience that was good for my marriage. Who are you kidding? Verse 29 tells us what the Lord thinks about our sin. He calls it trampling the Son of God underfoot. Ooh. I remember when some bullies once tried to trample my son underfoot. I have never been angrier. I have never had more difficulty maintaining self-control. Well, in love, God gave his son to save us. Imagine you beating him up. That's what the parable of the wicked tenants said what Jesus told in judgment against the leaders of Israel. You see, sin is more heinous than we thought. In verse 29, the Lord calls our waywardness, treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified. The blood of Christ we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, and we will continue to see, is the only thing that can cleanse us from sin. It is precious not just because of its unique effectiveness that is our only solution, but also because of the great sacrifice by which we uh, have received it. So picture if you had the blood of Christ in your hands and you took it in and flushed it down the toilet. The repercussions would be overwhelming. There would no longer be a way to be made clean. For we treated with contempt the most precious thing we had. That's how God sees it. Our sin is more heinous than we thought. Also in verse 29, God calls our rebellion insulting the spirit of grace. Did you ever try to help someone only to have them turn and insult you? Bet you didn't try again, did you? 
God has gone to great lengths to help us in spite of our insolence. In fact, when Jesus was being crucified, he was praying for those who hung him on the cross. God has lavished his spirit of grace on undeserving people. So what about the person who, knowing that, continues to bash and abuse and insult and grieve and and resist the spirit of grace? God will not tolerate such heinous sin forever. Finally, there's a third reason for the severity of God's judgment. Because God is a just judge. In in verses 30 and 31, we hear warning that's based on the justice of God himself. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, actually three quotes. There at the end of Moses' life, as Israel is about to enter the promised land, Moses talks to them in in the last chapters of Deuteronomy, and he sets before them blessing and cursing, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, life and death, calling them to choose life, faithfulness, the blessing of God's covenant. And then he reminds them what kind of God God is. God is holy. And he always keeps his word, keeps his word to bless it. He keeps his word to punish. And he warned that in view of God's great mercies to them, they dare not defy him. Now the writer of Hebrews is doing exactly the same thing Moses did. For God has not just brought us out of Egypt. He sent his son to the cross to free us from the slavery of sin. That grace, while completely free, demands a response worthy of the Lord who freed us. And so we're reminded of God's holy nature. He is the God of justice who avenges wrong. He is the judge who holds the world accountable, holds his people accountable. He is the living God from whom no one can deliver. Oh, you see, it is eternal safety to fall into the hands of God's mercy. But it is dreadful eternal death to fall in the hands of an angry God, a God of judgment. Don't trifle with the Lord. Reject his grace and you will face his justice. We begin by noting that though they are severe, some warnings are necessary to prevent harm. Well, let me just close by reminding you of the other side of warnings. Warnings not only define where the danger is, warnings also define where the safety is. And so the warnings of this text this morning not only warn us of the reality of judgment to come, they also remind us that safety is found in Jesus and nowhere else. That's God's purpose from the beginning, to hold us fast in the safety of the, fa- of the Savior's care. He alone forgives our sins and renews our, our souls. He alone gives us eternal life. He alone can and will keep us to the final day. And he alone enables us to stand before him righteous on judgment day. So never, never, Never stop trusting Jesus, no matter what. For to reject him is to end up with nothing but judgment. Amen.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, no one likes to talk about judgment. But Jesus, you told us that when the Spirit comes, he will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we pray that you would take the words of this text, plant them deep in our souls, and grow them there until they bear fruit of righteousness and faith and faithfulness and love for you and a willingness to obey you no matter what the cost. We can't make that happen, Lord, but you can and you do, and we pray that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.